0: Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 6 is our passage once again. Hebrews chapter 6, and we are dealing with the better things. In verse 9, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints, and so today is quite remarkable and very interesting in some respects. The fact that both last hour and this hour uh, the message centers on forgetting, in the fact that uh, in Philippians we are to forget what lies behind and reach forward, and here in Hebrews, God is not unjust so as to forget. And so we've got a couple of forgettable messages that we're going to learn from as we go through these principles as it applies to uh, each context that God is providing for us. Uh, God is not unjust so as to forget. Let's call upon God and His faithfulness this morning as we come together for the study of the Word of God and uh, ask Him for His faithfulness once again to, to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have, the blessing that is ours, Father, to assemble together, to receive instruction, to stand before you as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, we are presenting ourselves to be equipped, not just to learn things and know things, but to take hold of what we learn and know and make use of them in the uh, work assignment that you've provided for each one of us. So, Father, humble us to receive the word implanted. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so, both last hour and this hour, we're dealing with forgetting concepts. And uh, this forgetting is a good forgetting that uh, God says he's not going to do. And so we can rejoice in that and uh, And understand the uh, the impact of what 's happening here, but we start with the persuasion and last week we were dealing with uh, verses eight and nine: Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and so Paul or not Paul, but the author here of Hebrews and his companions, whether it 's uh, Barnabas or whether it 's Luke or apollos or whatever you're your theory is for the authorship of Hebrews, whoever the sole author was, he has help. He has a team with him because occasionally the I gives way to a we, such as uh, happens here. We are convinced of better things concerning you. And so that's a clue that the author is not by himself. And perhaps it's Barnabas and Luke. And so this this whole argument we've been having is kind of hilarious because it's both of them together in uh, in some sense. But uh, the convincing, I think this is important as well. So we have, uh, and last week we were looking at verse 9 and we were talking about the warning passages, recognizing this is the third and the longest of the warning passages, from 5.11 to 6.8. The third and the longest of Hebrews 5 primary warnings. And yet it has followed with a very encouraging but having finished uh, uh uh warning them using such harsh language as uh, being cursed and ends up being burned that's a that's a pretty uh, dark ending to a warning and then he follows it with a but beloved we are convinced of better things concerning you and so the primary author and those with him are persuaded that these warning passages in hebrews are going to be effective that they're going to be effective in saving the readers from their considered apostasy. They're on the verge of apostasy. He's warning them against apostasy, and he's convinced, he's been persuaded that they will turn away from that, that they will return to the Lord, that they will stay the course, and that they will not fall back into the apostasy that they're thinking about, considering going back to Mosaic Law, considering a return to Jerusalem and uh, the priestly function that they were engaged with there. And so, along with this salvation comes better things. And uh, that bothers a lot of folks. You know, what could be better than salvation? Well, first of all, this is not phase one salvation we're talking about anyway, it's phase two salvation. That they're going to be saved, rescued, delivered from sin. They're going to be delivered from apostasy. They're going to be delivered from the tragedy of walking away from the Word of God in your Christian walk. And uh, and what comes with that? All kinds of better things. Uh, walking with the Lord is a whole lot better than walking in darkness. And uh, walking in the truth is, uh, there's a, many better things that come with walking in truth as opposed to walking in apostasy. And so there are many better things that come with fulfilling the will of God for your life. Which now takes us into verse 10, as we talk about uh, the, the basis for this persuasion. Beloved, we are convinced. Why? <laughs> All right? You ever been convinced of something and you're not sure why? <laughs> Say, well, what convinced me of that? You know? Uh, and sometimes we allow ourselves to be convinced for, for dumb reasons. And, uh, and then when you realize that, you know, it's kind of shaky. Maybe I need to come back and rethink this because the thing that convinced me now turns out to be not so good and now I gotta wonder if maybe that conviction was, was problematic. Well here he explains why. Why is he convinced? Why is he and his team convinced? Because of the faithfulness of God. Because of the justice of God. The explanation is given in verse 10, for God is not unjust. And that, and that's the basis for the uh, consideration what is it that convinces the author and his associates uh, in in verse 9 when he says we are convinced it was reviewing the character and essence of God to me it's powerful and I love it every time I see it here it is God is not unjust God is not unfair is he and uh, many times that Paul does this many times that other authors in the New Testament do this when we review the character and essence of God what happens we get persuaded, we get convinced, we get comforted. There are practical benefits for us every time we review the character and essence of God. God is not unjust, is he? And uh, when you put it that way, (laughs) okay, right? And it just solves so many issues in our testing, so many issues in our growth, so many issues when maybe we've been pouting, maybe we've been throwing a pity party, maybe we've been uh, going through testing and then complaining about it and uh, disagreeing with God. And what, what feeds that? Fundamentally in our darkness, what feeds that is work accusing God of being unfair, <laughs> we're we're saying, God, this is unfair. This is not right. I shouldn't have to go through this. What are you making me do this for? And then somebody stops you and looks you in the eye and says, is God unfair? Is God fair? Is he righteous? Is he just? Is God love? Is he doing this because he hates you or is he doing this because he loves you? And then you stop and you say, okay, you're right. I don't want to no, no, I can't do that. God is fair. God is righteous, and that's how we resolve these things. And so, if um, I'll just walk you through some of my favorite passages, and it might be that there's uh, there's others that uh, that you prefer better than me. In fact, when class is over, you can say, "Why didn't you use this? This is my favorite justice of God passage, or this is my favorite righteousness of God passage." I can't believe you left it out. Um, well, that's good. Okay. This is part of what keeps you thinking and keeps your um, the attention focused. And if there's something I overlooked, then let me know. But uh, Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust. God is not unjust. And so uh, I like Genesis 18. I like Deuteronomy 32. I like Second Thessalonians. And uh, you probably have favorites beyond these. But let's just look at these this morning. Genesis 18.25. God is not unjust. And in a context here whereby Abraham is developing a prayer life, whereby Abraham is functioning as a steward, and um, not only on behalf of his nephew, but he could have had a, a much larger ministry even beyond that, it's, uh, it's curious to me what, what uh, comes into the, the detail here. All right? So Genesis 18, this is the very famous Sodom and Gomorrah story. This is the destruction of Sodom that happens here. The Lord is on his way to destroy. He's got some angels with him. And uh, in the process of this, and of course Abraham invites him in for dinner real quick, and then Sarah's got to feed these hungry guys. Um, but then they depart. And uh, in verse 16, the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with, with them to send them off. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And this is curious to me because this is God, you know, talking to himself, posing a rhetorical question and answering it himself. But it, it, to me, <clears throat> that's kind of a neat way to express it where we can understand God's thinking behind what he does. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? That's his question. And then he says, For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And how does he do that? By doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And so to me, it's a vital consideration with respect to the plan of God that when God is at work, when God has called somebody to service, such as in the case of Abraham, or such as in the case of the believers in the Hebrews epistle, or you and me today, that it's useful for us to stop and ask, wait a minute, what's the purpose of God in this? Is he hiding his purpose from us, or are we his fellow workers? And if we're his fellow workers, then how are we on board with what he's doing? And I think his essence is a big part of that, as, as is mentioned here, righteousness and justice. And so, uh, having resolved that in his own thinking then, in verse 19, he talks to Abraham. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. And by voicing this in Abraham's hearing, he's is now uh, cluing Abraham in into what is about to happen here. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. And so he's going to stand on the hill here with Abraham and watch over the process while the two angels are going on down in there. And uh, this is part of what angels do when angels learn and they observe humanity and, and, what, uh, and what's going on. So the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, and this is key because God's already addressed this in his own uh, internal deliberations. And obviously Abraham's like-minded. Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it. And then the key statement of verse 25, far be it from you. There's, a, there's a, an indignant uh, statement there. There's a tone whereby Abraham is telling God what to do. Abraham is is telling God what he can't do. Meaning he says, this is unthinkable of you. This is not the kind of God you are, God. And based upon what, based upon the character and essence of God, and so when you lock in on these principles, it becomes a blessing. It becomes the opportunity then by which uh, we can become persuaded, and uh, those convictions can come in a very uh, remarkable way when you know we're we're praying about a thing, we're we're wrestling with an issue, we've got a test going on, and we keep searching the scriptures, and I'm just not finding the verse, but I keep wrestling and I keep looking. And then all of a sudden the light kind of shines and the light bulb comes on and then the realization, well, wait a minute, what kind of God is God? What is it keeping with his nature? What would the God of grace be doing right now? What would a God of righteousness be doing with this particular test? And so the character and essence of God is, uh, is a true blessing uh, that when we review that so many times reviewing the character and essence of God is what brings us to our persuasions. It brings us to our being convinced, right? Being convinced. And uh, the more we uh, keep hitting this patho verb, the more we keep recognizing the blessing it is to be convinced when God is the one doing the convincing. So um, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, and then far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And now that's his rhetorical question. That's his uh, issue here. So the Lord says, you know what? You're right. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare the whole place on their account. And and what a what a thrill. I mean, goodness. The idea that a pivot of believers, a small pivot, can have benefit to a larger population of pagans, that's kind of encouraging, right? We want, we want to, we want to bless our city, we want to bless our county, our state, our nation, and we want, you know, believers that are positive to the Word of God, we want the righteous in a, in a land to be that salt and light, to be that blessing, whereby our righteousness benefits the, uh, the unrighteous that surround us. All right, and so that'd be kind of a nice end of the chapter if it ended there, but um, it doesn't end there. And it, the, the story, as we know, proceeds. Abraham realizes that he, he spoke too quickly without thinking it through, and 50 was kind of ridiculous um, for uh, a place like Sodom. Okay? And uh, there's other aspects here, and this, this is uh, such a fun chapter. Um, so he, he, he says a second time, Abraham replied, now behold, I've ventured to speak to the Lord, although I'm but dust and ashes. You know, here's, here's Abraham who just got through telling God what to do. He just got through telling God what he couldn't do. And God said, okay. And then he realized, wait a minute, um, maybe, I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm five short. Uh, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. I might have misestimated uh, will you destroy the whole city because of the five that I was missing if there's only 45 believers there? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45. And so he spoke to him yet again in verse 29. And this, this is such a pattern. This is our persistent prayer life. And we're supposed to pray with, you know, without ceasing. And we're supposed to keep pestering the, uh, the Lord in prayer. Jesus teaches that as a valid, uh, function in our prayer life. That, that, uh, persistent prayer. So, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. That's the third request. Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. That's his fourth request. Right? And he keeps talking them down 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. That's the sixth prayer request. Why did he stop at six? And that's uh, a curious thing to me cuz sevens are a great number of completion and perfection and and why did Abraham just not spell it out and say Lord I have a nephew his name is Lot he's a knucklehead I want you know I don't want him to die he's probably the only believer in the entire town okay now what a prayer would that have been huh you know think about the benefits on that and so um we see it here and as uh this is curious to me too cuz God never tells Abraham, will you quit doing this? God never tells Abraham, I'm, "I'm, you know, quit bargaining with me. I'm not, you know, am I a man that, are we in a marketplace here? Are you, you trying to, to bargain the price down? So he talks him down to 30. This is Genesis 18. And then verse 31. Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. That's his fifth prayer is 20. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And each time Abraham keeps pestering the Lord, the Lord very patiently keeps answering the prayer. The Lord never gets irritated. The Lord never throws a temper tantrum. The Lord never gets, you know, fed up to hear and says, that's it, Abraham, I'm sick of this. Quit messing with me. The Lord never says, Abraham, this is your last shot. Okay, instead, Abraham says, Okay, Lord, this is my last shot. Abraham says, in verse 32, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak only this once. What a mistake. Okay? What a mistake. Shouldn't have done that. I will speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he guessed wrong. <laughs> okay? Even 10 was too optimistic. Uh, The Lord said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And then he walks away. As soon as he finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. Abraham returned to his place. So why did the Lord walk away at that? Because Abraham said, this is my last deal. Abraham said, this is my last, my last offer. And so we learn a lot from this. There's a, there's a tremendous pattern with respect to this. And, you know, it's, with, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Don't hint about it. He knows what you want anyway, and He knows what you need before you ask about it. So just ask. Say, this is it. Lord, there's one guy there. His name is Lot. And, uh, and so he's not going to spare the city, but he is going to spare Lot. And that's, a, that's an important principle as well. Anyway, God is not unjust. Are we clear on that? God is not unjust. And so um, we have that. We also have Deuteronomy 32, another passage. God is not unjust. This is in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Remember, everything we do is under angelic observation and human observation. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Ascribe greatness to our God. You know, God ascribes his own greatness. His word reveals who he is. His word reveals what he is. Everything we know about God, we know from His Word. And yet, we are called upon to do what? To ascribe His greatness. We're called upon to celebrate His greatness, to to ascribe it, to celebrate it, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. And that, that says everything you need to say right there. That locks it right in. God is faithful. And so we review the faithfulness of God. And it's fruitful. We, we remind ourselves. We remind others. We celebrate these things. It helps to reinforce these things when we center on the faithfulness of God. One from the New Testament I like, Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, and this one's more obscure, but I think it is um, crucial to understand our place in the church age and to um, not grow impatient in what we haven't seen yet, because sometimes we're too impatient and God's too slow, and uh, what we want, uh, we want now. And if we don't get it now, the first thing we do is stomp our feet and think that God's unfair. (laughs) No, God's not unfair. You're impatient. How about that? (laughs) Okay? Because his fairness will be displayed, but it's too soon now for him to display his fairness, for him to display his justice. And uh, the justice you want him to inflict right here, right now would not be justice. Because it would be too soon, and uh, there's some aspects there. So, Second Thessalonians chapter one, and and they were a good church. They they weren't a Corinthian assembly. They weren't uh, they weren't struggling with a bunch of other things, but um, they were going through some persecutions and they were enduring them. But then they were kind of hoping that the payback would come pretty quickly, and uh, they're told that it won't. And are we are we willing to accept that? That's curious to me. All right. So uh, here in chapter 1, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. The love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Well, how did that happen? Was that an accident? It happened because of the persecutions and the afflictions which they endured. It actually shaped them into a more loving, more enduring, more faithful church. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And that's not gossip. That is sanctified boasting. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And, uh, you know, how do you speak of Austin Bible Church when you're somewhere else and other churches and they want to know, well, what kind of church is Austin Bible Church? What kind of ministry is Austin Obama Church? What kind of pastor is Pastor Bob? What kind of flock? You know, I had an atheist last week say, "Do you have a good flock? What's your flock about?" I said, "I got the greatest flock in the world," and uh, I was happy that he even brought it up because I know he's an atheist. Hey, let's talk about it. All right, and uh, we speak proudly of you. You know, it's not a statement he can make about the Corinthians. (laughs) You know. If he's in Ephesus or he's in Rome or wherever he is, and he's, um, actually he wrote this from Corinth, and uh, I imagine he was delighted to talk to the Corinthians about the Thessalonians, you know, saying, wow, there's a church up there in Thessalonica, up there in Macedonia, all those Macedonian churches. They were great. So speaking proudly, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure, So what kind of flock is Austin Bible Church? A tested flock, an enduring flock, a faithful flock, in spite of whatever they go through. Now, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. If a flock is being tested or a family is being tested or a person is being tested, if bad things are happening to good people, that's not an indication that God is unfair. That's just the opposite. It's an indication that God is perfectly fair. God is righteous and just and gracious and merciful. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. And You say, hey, you know, my afflictions are not for no reason. My afflictions are for very good reasons. We're being suited individually, maritally, family, church family. A flock is being suited. And God, is, all these things are happening for the kingdom. And it's righteous, it's just. God is not about to put his son on the throne with a child bride that's so infantile she wouldn't know, you know. He wants an adult bride, a mature bride, a powerful bride. Eve was suitable unto Adam, and the church is suitable unto the second Adam, unto Jesus Christ. When he takes his seat on the throne of David and we are ruling with him, You know, read Psalm 45 sometimes. See the queen and see the the glories of the queen next to the king as he reigns. And then we get to the repayment. Verse 6, For after all, it is only just. It is just. It is righteous. We love the righteousness of God. When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Likewise, when he repays the wicked, he is just when he repays the wicked, particularly when he waits for the second advent. After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Ha <laughs> ha, yes, finally. Rubbing my hands, go get them, God. They've been, they've been afflict you know, they've been afflicting me. Start throwing the lightning bolts now. Why haven't you been getting them yet? And to give relief to you who are afflicted. Okay, that sounds good. And to us as well. Notice though, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> you mean, I got to wait? And even better, yes, we got to wait. And even better, by the time this happens, you and I will already be resurrected, glorified, judgment seat processed, dressed in white, sin nature removed. We will be holy and perfect as He is holy and perfect. We will be sinless. And we will have the attitude God has who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So when that recompense finally hits we will be like-minded with Jesus Christ. That it's necessary, that it's just, that it glorifies Him, but we will draw no perverse delight such as we would probably derive today if we observed the downfall of somebody that our carnality wants to observe the downfall. Okay? I think that's critical. I think there's a reason why Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I think there's a reason why. There's a lot of garments that I mean, this is primarily the the major one. We wear a lot of garments that Jesus wears. From our robe of you know, our robe of light, our breastplate of righteousness. A a lot of what we wear mirrors what Jesus wears. The one thing that he wears, he wears vengeance like a like a mantle. And we can't. We can't. We're not equipped. We cannot put on vengeance. We have to leave vengeance in the hands of God constantly. All right. So um, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, this is payback, to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Notice it's not temporary, it's not finite, it never ends. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And then I love verse 10, when He comes to be glorified in His saints, in His saints, with His saints, by His saints. We can discuss uh, the date of case and what's going on here, but When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, we're going to be right there with him. A bunch of victorious saints by grace. Not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, but victorious. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. You know how many marvels? I mean, think about it. We're going to be looking at each other going, wow. Who would have thought? (laughs) Yeah. You know, somebody from your past finds out Man, he became a pastor? How did that happen? Hey. Somebody that served on the Navy on a ship with Gary Williams contacted me years after Gary passed away and said, I saw his name on your website and is that the same Gary Williams that and yeah. He got saved? Yeah. He was a deacon at Austin Bible Church. Now he's face to face with Jesus Christ. So he's going to be glorified and he's going to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So in the meantime, don't sweat it. And if you're being persecuted, praise God. And if you're swift to hand out judgment, well, what if uh, what if your patient enduring of sufferings sparked something in those afflictors? You know, Paul was a persecutor of the church, and look what happened to him. What if your tormentor actually gets saved because you turned the other cheek? Because you endured it, you gave glory to to God. And he got tired of picking on you and tried to figure out why you were different. Okay? It's an interesting thing. And uh, and then... (laughs) He gets saved, he starts growing in the Word of God, and then you kind of feel a little sheepish and a little, you know, I'm, I'm glad he didn't go to hell when I told him to go to hell, <laughs> okay, you know, here I was just going to blast him with lightning bolts, and now he's a believer, and now he's doing whatever, becoming a pastor or a missionary, what? I mean, is that not better for the glory of Jesus Christ? all right and so in reviewing the character and the essence of god i think it's a it's a glorious thing to especially to lock in on god's justice as is happening here god is not unjust so as to forget so as to forget what might he forget what they've done now maybe they should forget what they've done maybe they should forget what lies behind but god won't All right, and so we've got to reconcile this. How is it that Philippians tells us to forget everything and Hebrews tells us to remember everything? And and so, and how fun is it that the Lord brought us to both chapters on the same Sunday? But looking at Hebrews 6, God is not unjust so as to forget your labor, to forget, and it's interesting, your work, and the love which you have shown towards his name. In having ministered, that's the past, and in still ministering, that's the present, to the saints. And so here we get a couple of participles from the same verb, but we get a, a twin emphasis, both the past and the present. And this is uh, this is what we've got to look at. And this kind of gets, I don't do a lot of exegesis in this hour, but I think this is is kind of, Important. The Hebrew epistle recipients had a track record. And their track record was one of love and service, of work, of ministry. So I'm just going to kind of combine all those terms and call it loving ministry. (laughs) All right? And that was their track record. That was their reputation. That's what they've done. That's what they continue to do. But they're on the verge of stopping that. They're on the verge of actually dropping everything that's going on now and running back to Jerusalem, running back to Judaism, falling away from the church age reality, returning to their Old Testament status, as if you could do such a thing, right? So the, epistle, the Hebrew epistle recipients had a track record of loving ministry, even in the midst of growing conflict. There were things that happened along the way whereby they could have stopped. Things that happened along the way where they could have Compromise. They could have caved in. They could have made their life easier by denying the church, and they didn't. And yet, they're on the verge of apostatizing now and doing the very same thing they resisted doing through all the conflict. And you think, really? After we've survived this, we've survived this, we survived this. Now, you're going to throw it all out? All right. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name. Notice, when you're serving one another, who are you really serving? The Lord. Yeah, it's his name. It's the love you have shown towards his name. Do you love the name of Jesus? That becomes your motivating virtue for what you're doing in your service. You're not doing your service because you love your pastor, or you love your church, or you love that other person. I mean, eventually you come to the point, you quit loving that other person, (laughs) right? You come to the point, well, what have they done for me lately? And you start to think, uh, you know, I don't think they're worth it anymore. Well, is Jesus worth it? Okay, that's what it's about. You're serving Jesus. Towards his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And so we see, now let me just give you a couple of previews, some clues. Hebrews 10, we get a little background here that I think helps us to understand chapter 6 a little bit better. Hebrews ten thirty two says, But remember the former days. And we're going to talk about this on Wednesday night, because Wednesday night we have to define what does it mean to forget what lies behind when... Hebrews ten thirty two says, "Remember the former days. Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. remember that when you named the name of Christ and you started walking in the light, that crowd you left behind. What did they think? How do they respond? How do they treat you? Partly by being made a public spectacle." Through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So not only did you go through quite a bit of stuff, you also identified with fellow brothers and sisters as they were going through a lot of stuff. And either step and each step of the way, you could have avoided all that if you would have just thrown in the towel and denied the name of Jesus Christ and gone back to the the Judaism you were leaving. These are the crossovers we're talking about. Most of them were believing priests. And so, notice, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You showed sympathy to the prisoners. Think about it. Are you going to identify with them? Are you, going to show, are you going to bring them gifts? Are you going to feed them? Are you going to take care of them? Come and visit them on visitation day? Oh, are you with them? You know, think about Peter when they said, are you with this guy? Oh, no, no, I'm not with him. <laughs> yeah, Peter denied the Lord three times these guys weren't denying anybody they showed sympathy with the prisoners and they accepted joyfully the seizure of your property you ever what happened to Paul's wife when he entered into the church you ever want to know what happened to Paul's estate when he entered into the church whatever happened to his property when the Sanhedrin seizes it All right. Accept it joyfully, the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. And so remember that stuff and keep pressing forward. Keep pressing forward. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. I mean, you're on the verge of throwing it away now after all you've gone through? You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Yet in a little while, and he will not delay. All right, so they have gone through growing conflict. How much? How, how, well, not yet to the point of martyrdom, but they were approaching that. Hebrews twelve four. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin yet you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And so that takes into the discipline passage there of Hebrews chapter 12. So what are we saying? These Hebrew epistle recipients had a track record. I mean, whether they were in Antioch or wherever they were, we don't know the geography. We don't know the city that the letter was written from and we don't know the destination of where it was written to. But we just know that it was a body of believers with a priestly background Undeniable, they had a Levitical priestly background. And so wherever they are now, some even think they're in Jerusalem. I think they've left Jerusalem, but they're on the verge of returning back to Jerusalem. And uh, these recipients, they had a track record of loving ministry, even in the midst of growing conflict. And yet they're on the verge of apostasy uh, there's two participles here and and this is where again I don't get into a lot of exegesis in in this hour but we have um, the verb is diakoneo D-I-A-K-O-N-E-O I I didn't give a Strong's number or anything but you can see there's there's the diakon right there D-I-A-K-O-N the n looks like a V but it's a new diakon and uh, we have it here with the asantis ending And we have the same verb, diacon with the untus ending. Why do they change the endings? Because that's what you do. When you're taking a verb and you're putting it in a different uh, tense, a different mood, a different case, uh, whatever you're doing here in uh, conjugating your verbs. In this case, they're both participles. The one is an aorist participle. The other is a present participle. And uh, what they emphasize is the same verb. It's the same deacon. It's the same deacon service. So you're deaconing You've been deaconing, you continue to deacon. You continue to serve the saints. That's what deacons do. Here in a few minutes, the deacons are going to deacon and they're going to serve by bringing the communion elements down the, uh, down the aisles. So we have an aorist participle speaking of a past action prior to the main verb of the sentence. We have a present participle, diaconuntis, speaks of action contemporaneous to the main verb of the saints, and so there is the service that they served, and there's the service that they continue to serve. And God is not unfaithful to uh, to forget all that, but both are being mentioned. God is not unjust as so to forget your work and the love which you have shown in having ministered, eris participle, and presently still ministering, present participle, to the saints. God's aware of all of that. What you've done, what you're doing. Right? Are we clear? That's that's vital. Because we fail in this. We fail in this. This is another indication that the epistle recipients are former Levitical priests who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah and they have become crossovers into the church. Uh, We've discussed this a few times, but Acts 6 and verse 7 is uh, an enigmatic uh, side note that you wonder, why did Luke put that in the book of Acts? Why did the Holy Spirit put that in the Bible? Why don't we ever see these guys ever again? In Acts chapter 6, we have the selection of the first deacons, and uh, Stephen and, and these guys that are listed here in verse 5. And um, and we're told in verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests. Notice. And it doesn't say that they were receiving eternal life. I expect that most of these priests were Old Testament believers saved in their childhood looking forward to the coming Messiah. But what does it say? Many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That is the crossing over from Old Testament status to New Testament status. They're transitioning from being an Old Testament believer, to, you know, Messiah is coming someday, to Messiah came. He died and rose again. He is seated at the Father's right hand. And so this is, the, this is what I call the crossover. You've got converts and you've got crossovers in the first century. We don't have that anymore. But in the first century, you had crossovers and you had converts. If you were traveling around the Roman world in the first century, you might encounter a bunch of unbelievers, and they need to—they need the gospel, they need to get saved. You might also encounter a bunch of Old Testament believers. And they don't need to get saved again, but they do need to cross over. They do need to learn the good news of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ that if all they know about is that Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, that's what saved them before the cross. Now they need to be brought into the church age, into the body of Christ. And so they're not converts because you don't get saved a second time. I'm calling them the crossovers. They're crossing over from Old Testament believer to New Testament believer. Does that make sense? All right. And so these guys are the the crossovers, and especially what better crossovers than Levitical priests? (laughs) I mean... Those guys, or maybe Pharisees, you know, you get a bunch of people that were Old Testament believers that know their Bible. And now they're ready to get a new Bible. Now they're ready to get a Greek canon along with their Hebrew canon. Now they're ready to be God's agents and servants in the early church. And like the Apostle Paul, he's going to write 13 books in the New Testament. Or like Luke, Luke himself, in all likelihood being a Levitical priest, um, writing Luke, writing Acts, and possibly writing Hebrews. In which case, Luke writes more than Paul. Even without Hebrews, Luke writes more than Paul. Luke and Acts are long, just in word count, right? But if he, if Luke is also the author of Hebrews, if we have 1st Theophilus, 2nd Theophilus, and 3rd Theophilus in Hebrews, okay, that's, uh, that's extraordinary. So, um, with respect to these participles now. And, and it's left unstated, but the author knew what he was talking about and the recipients knew what he was talking about. In having ministered and still ministering, the ministry you had back in the day when you were a Levitical priest in Jerusalem and the ministry you have now as church-age believer priests, what you did and what you're doing. Think about it. It's kind of an interesting way to reflect this. So it's another indication that the epistle recipients are former Levitical priests who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah and become crossovers into the church. So then when he talks about the ministry you did and the ministry you're doing, he can very easily be reflecting what you did in your Levitical priesthood, what you're doing now in your Melchizedek priesthood. What you did as Old Testament believers, what you're doing now as New Testament believers. See, otherwise they are going to start forgetting about this. God won't forget what they did or what they're doing, but the Hebrews' recipients are in danger of an unrighteous forgetting. Forgetting their present ministry and a desire to return and resume a past ministry. Forgetting their present ministry in a desire to return and resume a past ministry. And they are on the verge, the warning of this apostasy... They're going to throw away the present participle and try to go back to that heiress participle. They're going to try to go back to what they used to be doing. So the Hebrew recipients are in a danger of an unrighteous forgetting. Forgetting their present ministry and a desire to return and resume a past ministry. This is why, and we're going to expand upon this Wednesday night in the Philippians series. Philippians 3.13 says, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. If you've got a ton of regrets over a past ministry, so much so that you can't let it go, and you're not even fruitful in this ministry because you keep wishing that this ministry was like that last ministry, okay, you know. And, uh, of course, it's easy for me because this is my one and only ministry, my one and only church. But when Ralph was the pastor here, how many brooking stories did we hear? We heard thousands of brooking stories. We heard all about, you know, the previous church. And, you know, you start to think, well, wait a minute, you know. You want to go back to those guys? It sounds like you miss them. What are we? What's going on here? Okay. Anyway, if, 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 you're, if you won't forget the past, like Philippians 3 orders you to, if you keep dwelling on, man, things were better back there, then you might start regretting what you're doing here. You might even decide, hey, forget this, let's go back. And that's what their danger was. That's why they get the five warnings they get in the book of Hebrews. That's why again and again and again, the Levitical priesthood is shown as being so inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood. That's why we can thank God that Jesus Christ opens doors no man can shut. He shuts doors no man can open. Revelation 3, verses 7 and 8. So if he closes a ministry, what are we going to do? Try to reopen that door again? We're going to argue with Jesus? Okay? Because he closed the door. So let's go through the open door and let's keep pressing forward. Let's keep pressing on the upward way. Because whatever we did in the past, hey, it's over, it's done, that door's closed. Good, bad, or otherwise... That's now laid up in heaven as wood, hay, straw or gold, silver, precious stones or some of both, whatever. Let's keep reaching forward. That's the impact there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for this message and thank you that we have the time to get through this message, Father. It's, uh, it's always a short session with communion, but I thank you, Father, uh, that you from the foundation of the world in eternity past, you put us in uh, Philippians at 9.30 and you put us in Hebrews 6 at 11 o'clock. And Father, I thank you for the, uh, the blending of these, of these ideas and the uh, I pray that the message would be profitable and impacting, that we would respond to what is being made clear, that we would see the truth of what is and that we would embrace it, that we would um, not only understand it but live it out and and uh, make it very real in uh, how we think and how we operate. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to these blessings. Um, equip us to forget what needs to be forgotten, to remember what needs to be remembered, and uh, and uh, to do so according to Scripture. Uh, thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The so Sunday school classes will be brought in here for to join us for communion, and we shall...